Blog Talk Radio. Welcome all truth seekers from across the globe. This is Reverend Karen L. Heasley from the Spiritual Path Church of Newcastle, Pennsylvania in the United States. Our truth seeker show covers a variety of subjects from angels to afterlife communication to parapsychology to spiritualism to near-death experiences to meditation and a number of other truth-seeking topics. We are happy you have chosen to join us for this episode and hope you find it informative and enjoyable. Now, get a piece of paper and a pencil, because we have a jam-packed show tonight. And here's the number to call in on, 657-383-0416. I'm going to repeat that again, 657-383-0416. And we also have a chat room opened as well. Tonight, our guests are Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smoltz. Dr. Raymond Moody coined the term near-death experience in 1975 in his best-selling book, Life After Life, and has since written 12 other books, which investigates the mysteries associated with grief, dying, and the afterlife. Lisa Smart is the author of Words at the Threshold that shares the early findings of the Final Words Project, an informal research project dedicated to the study of final words, co-founded with Dr. Moody in 2014. On September 20th, 2018, Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart launched the University of Heaven, an online educational platform offering courses and resources about near-death shared death, and after-death experiences. Moody and Smart's online university launches with a six-month webinar series, Raymond Moody's Consciousness, Form, Into the Light, the Near-Death Experience. The University of Heaven features Moody's half a century of research and that of his protégés and colleagues who have shared his interest in the remarkable accounts of dying, and the near death, which includes descriptions of out-of-body experiences, being in the presence of a light, appearances of deceased friends and family members along with a life review, and the feeling of unconditional love and spiritual peace. I'd like to welcome right now Dr. Raymond Moody and Lisa Smart. Hello, Karen. Hello, everyone. Yeah, and hello, Karen. Thank you so much for having us on tonight. Well, I do have to tell one story, and then it's all yours. Um, When I was in college in 1977, uh, my uh, philosophy professor told me to read the book Life After Life by Dr. Raymond Moody. And I, you know, I, I read this book, and everything in it, pertain to things that happened to me, but nobody talked to me about it. So that was in 1977. And so I think when I got my tonsils out, they gave me too much ether and my lungs collapsed and I went into cardiac arrest and I had an NDE, but nobody talked to me about it until I read his book and I went home and I said to my mother, did I have an NDE? And she said, yes, but they told me never to talk to you about it. So your book helped me put all the pieces wow. of the puzzle together. It's a truth. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. That yes. really means a lot to me. Thank you. Well, it means a lot to me, Raymond, because without that book, I would have probably been still searching around and wondering why things were happening to me the way they mm-hmm. did. So I want to really personally say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank you, and, and it's it goes right back to you because, uh, you know, listening to all those thousands of people who've been there and back has really uh, 
transformed my way of thinking in a, a very radical um, direction, to say the very least you could. I mean, I just... Uh, I never had any exposure to ideas about life after death or God, or except in a rather negative way. I mean, my family was kind of made fun of it. And, you know, we didn't have friends who were real religious. Our friends were just more interested in philosophical things. So it's, you know, I just am so grateful to all those thousands of people that I've uh, talked with who've been willing to share my, uh, you know, their stories. It's happened once in a while that somebody will come up to me and they'll start telling me a story of the near-death experience. Mm -hmm. And then they'll say, oh, I guess you've heard so many of this, this (laughs) must be boring. (laughs) And, you know, I think... Oh, sure, it's boring to hear somebody talk about how the doctor thought they were dead and they got it. But it's never boring, right? Every one of them is just as exciting as the first one you ever hear. That's yeah, that's wonderful. And and you um you're probably best known for the coining of the term near death experience. Can you describe how you first came upon uh, the term, and can you discuss the components of the near-death for our listeners who may not be fully aware of what they are? Yeah, well, not being religious, I went to University of Virginia when I was 18 intent on studying astronomy. But I quickly got shifted over to philosophy by reading Plato's Republic which is really about near-death experiences in that it culminates at the end with this very dramatic story of a near-death experience. And I, being a, I just, to me, the idea of an afterlife was just a, a joke or like a fantasy that people had. And when I realized that Plato took it seriously, I, I thought again about it, and I thought, if a man like this can can really seriously think that there might be an afterlife. I was just bowled away. And so I, in talking with my philosophy professor, Mr. Hammond, about Mm -hmm. this, he said that actually there were a lot of these early Greek philosophers who studied these cases. So that's what was so fascinating to me. But then three years later, in 1965... I met the finest human being I ever met in my life. His name was George Ritchie, and he was a professor of psychiatry. And he had had such an experience, and he he talked often to student groups about it. And I heard Dr. Ritchie talk, and I, first of all, I knew, number one, that he was, that he was sincere. There was no question that this was something that really had happened to him. I mean, I I just didn't know what to make of it, but I accepted that, that he was sincere. And then, since then, I've just interviewed thousands and thousands of people. And um, But that was how I got interested in it. It was through philosophy, not through religion. And uh, I still am not much on religion. I'm, I'm a... I talk to God all the time, and he's never said a word to me about religion. I suspect that if he wanted me to be religious, he would have spoken up by now. But um, but that's how it all came about. And it was a long time for me to... I always understood that the people were, are, were sincere. And I, I understood from my first couple of months in medical school, after I'd been investigating these for 10 years, I understood that they weren't caused by the oxygen deprivation to the brain Mm -hmm. because one of my own professors of medicine described to me an identical experience she had had of getting out of her body and seeing her deceased mother and seeing a light, not when she was ill, but when she was resuscitating her mother who died. And as she was resuscitating her mother, she had all these things, like she got out of her body, she saw the light, she saw the dead relatives of her mother coming toward her mother. And so 
that means that since the, my professor was not ill or injured herself, it couldn't have been the oxygen deprivation to her brain. And I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people who've had the same experience just when they were sitting there with somebody who was dying. Mm-hmm. And their mm-hmm. feeling was that they empathically co-lived the dying experience of the person who was passing away. And so there's something very different going on from a physiological disturbance of the brain. It's, um, And then the question is, well, what is it? And um, I, you know, you, you know too from your experience that there is a lot of stuff in this field that is as important as these things are, that is just not very serious or well grounded. And so, mm-hmm. a year or so ago, um, Lisa and I started thinking about creating some sort of educational place on the internet where we could um, uh, have really serious programs about near-death experiences. So that's what we're setting up to do, and we hope that you will join us. Uh, uh, I am uh, on uh, October the 30th, I think it is, Lisa. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is on October 30th. Um, We're going to be giving a free webinar and I'm going to be talking about the process through which I have not reached the, not a logical conclusion, but just a state of perplexity, which I don't know what else to say except, <laughs> to my astonishment, there is life after death. Um, and this is, incidentally, this is the, how you can reach us is www theuniversityofheaven.com and if you'll get on there and look you can sign up for the free webinar on October 30th and then in the coming months we're going to have some of these incredible people who've had near-death experiences that have really brought me to the point where I give up I mean I don't know what else to say except that there's a life after death and for example one of our early interviewees is going to be Jeff Jeff Olson, who's a graphic artist out west, and and his doctor, Doctor O'Driscoll, who's a very well known trauma surgeon. Okay. And some years back, Jeffrey was in a horrendous car crash where he lost his leg and he had a very profound near death experience. His mm-hmm. wife died in the accident, and one of his children. And so Jeffrey had this profound near-death experience. But when he finally finally got around to telling it to his doctor, the doctors are a lot of patients don't want to tell their doctors, but he finally did. Mm-hmm. And he said that the doctor told him that he knew that that night that Jeffrey wasn't going to die because during the surgery, uh, Doctor O'Driscoll said that he saw and talked with the dead wife of Jeffrey. And as this progressed, it turns out that the scrub nurse in the procedure said, yeah, me too. I heard the dead wife talking. And, I mean, I could go on and on giving plenty of examples, but my point here is that I don't know what else to say except that apparently there is a life after death. Oh, I believe that, Dr. Lee. There's no no question in my mind there is. That's that's a fascinating. So can so as they were operating on him, they talked to his dead wife. Yeah, can yeah. You, I, I'm and trying to and get it that took a while mind. for this doctor to come up and you know come out publicly, which you can you know you can realize why. But but I've just heard this from so many doctors that they participate empathically in their patients' yes. near death experiences. Mm-hmm. That uh, what else can you say? I mean, if somebody else could come up with some alternate take on this, I mean, I if that doesn't imply that these people are are mentally ill or something. I mean, these are very, very yeah. sane physicians that you would yes. trust with your life, and yet they tell us these extraordinary things. And 
one of our interviewees in the coming months is going to be a, a wonderful orthopedic surgeon and Ph.D. in um, physiology who is uh, just a very eminent professor of, of um, orthopedic surgery who was struck by lightning in the neck in 1996 and had a cardiac arrest and had all of the typical things we hear, like leaving his body and having this amazing near-death experience. But afterward, even though he had never been interested one bit in music, he developed this fascination with the piano Mm -hmm. and started having dreams in which he was playing the same piece of music on a concert stage on the piano. And around this time, a friend of his just came by and said, look, I'm leaving town for a year, and is there any way that you could store my piano for a year for me? (laughs) So he (laughs) took up the piano, and now in addition to being an eminent um, uh, professor of orthopedic surgery is also mm-hmm. a concert pianist. And at a certain point, you see, you just have to say, well, I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, apparently, there is an afterlife. Oh, yes. There's definitely. I, I remember one thing, because when I had mine, I was five years old, so I didn't have... Mm-hmm. You know, my world was, you know, at five, you don't know too much, right? You really don't. You're not indoctrinated with a lot of things, but I do remember one thing as I walked through that tunnel, that I no longer had a body. I just knew it, just the knowing. I I did not have a body at all. It's just something that you never forget, too. I mean, I can remember it like like it was yesterday, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of end of years feel the same way. Oh, yeah. It's seared into the memory. Oh, yes, it is. Um, And in one of your books, The Glimpses of Eternity, you coined the the term shared death experience. you want to talk a little bit about what the shared death experience is for our listeners? Because some of them, like I said, don't even know what that is. Yeah. Well, um, a near-death experience consists of something that happens to people when they have a cardiac arrest, for example, from which they're resuscitated. Mm -hmm. And what they tell us is that when their heart stopped beating, they got out of their body and drifted up and went through a passageway into a light, and that in that light they met relatives and friends of theirs who had died. And they saw their life pass in review in a sort of hologram. And then they would come back to life saying that whatever they had been chasing before in life, like um, power or money or fame or any of these other things, or knowledge, as some of us chase, that whatever they had been chasing, that they realized through this experience that what life is all about is learning to love. They said that that's what appears in your life review. So, this is a well-established phenomenon that's well known, and it has been well known since the time of Plato and his contemporary Democritus, who lived about the same time. And Democritus was the founder of atomic theory, and. So he had just figured out that there were atoms. And so basically he and Plato were in a debate. And Plato looked at these experiences and he said, oh, yeah, this really indicates the afterlife. Whereas Democritus said, no, it's just the residual biological activity in the body. We would say today the oxygen deprivation to the brain. Okay. And... um the what are, what undermines or destroys that whole form of debate is that the same experience we call a near death experience is also very common not in people who almost die and revive and are revived but rather people who just happen to be there when somebody else dies and most most commonly it's the patients, relatives, or doctor, um, 
And um, so what the bystanders say is that when the person in the bed dies, one of the common things, and I hear this very frequently from doctors, they say, I was resuscitating this patient, and he died, and when he died, I saw this light come out of him. And they typically say it comes out from the near the top of the body. And it's often described as kind of goldish and roundish. And it, very often they say it just rises up and they see it go through the ceiling. And there's a lot of talk in the medical community about this, although people are embarrassed about it. I, not too long ago, I talked with a physician from San Francisco, he was talking about this, and he said all of the people in his medical group are just obsessed. Like, what is that light that you see coming out of the dead patient? But, you know, it's not the kind of thing they're very comfortable talking about. So, so, so they say, well, we see, they, they see this light leave the body, or it's also very common for the bystanders say to say that as their loved one died, that they got out of their own bodies and rose up part way with their dying relative, and that at a certain point their relative went on into the light, but they came back and settled into their bodies. And other people will tell you that as the person in the bed dies, the room fills up with light mm-hmm. that... Um, that they see spirits of apparently the dying person's dead relatives come in the room as though to escort them away. And incredibly, I have quite a number of cases where the bystanders say that they empathically co-lived the dying life review of the person who passed away. And that is probably the most unsettling thing that I have learned in this whole research I've done because to me the idea of having a spectator and <laughs> sitting in on my life, life review, review? Mm-hmm. when I don't even want to see it myself is kind of horrifying. <laughs> well, it is kind of, yeah. And at first I thought, well, surely this has got to be somebody who was attached to the patient. And in the first dozen or so cases were, you know, several dozen. But then, uh, not too long ago, this physician contacted us who was very puzzled, and he said that he was called to the ER to resuscitate a patient he had never met before. But as he was resuscitating that patient, he said he was surrounded by all these images just in a hole all around him that were this, he saw were this this patient's life was being reviewed right there in his presence. Well, and he saw uh, that. Oh my! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and but this is you know most of those like that I've heard are from uh, people who were very close to the um, to the person who died. One of them was at a distance. Um, this woman in British Columbia some years ago. Uh, was talking to me after my lecture, and she said that some while before that her grandfather had died, but she didn't know that he was dead, but that the way it happened, what turned out to be the time that he had died, she she saw his whole life pass before her. And he was a farmer, and a lot of it had to do with farming and so on. But she said it was just his life. And and she said then, shortly thereafter, he, she learned that he had died. So, you know, I give up. <laughs> I mean, these are things that happen to people, but I'm sure hoping that not many people are leaning on me for an explanation of this, but um, I, I I give up. I know it happens, and um, it happens. When you bring it yeah, up, when, to Raymond. Go ahead, Lisa. And what I think, Go ahead. I just what I think is remarkable, Raymond, in your lifetime. I mean, Raymond coined the term in 1975, and obviously, people discuss this. If you look at 
all kinds of um, mystical traditions, or even Plato, right? Uh, the whole idea of an afterlife or near-death experiences have emerged in all all, all cultures, um, or many cultures over time. However, Raymond, at least, was the first for us in contemporary times to really you know, put a name on this and label. And yeah, to, he did. Um, and put right and put you know very defining characteristics, so that it can be integrated in a in in a way that we're seeing well, we're seeing the fruits of Raymond's work now because more and more we're hearing of medical professionals stepping up as Raymond explained and being more and more comfortable with these ideas where there in the past there was such a division you know between what we thought of as medic medicine and spirituality. Well, like, yeah, in the 1950s when I had mine in the, and my mother was a nurse, believe it or not, and they told her never to talk about it with me, this DMD, never, never talk about it. So the only time she talked about it, I don't know. I don't know. I asked her that, and she said, they just told me never to talk about it. I don't think they had any answers for it. What do you think, Dr. Moody? That's what I'm saying. I heard this all the time. It's like um, many of the people that I interviewed in the uh, 60s and 70s who had had these experiences told me that very same thing. They said that they tried to tell their doctor about it, and the doctor wouldn't listen and or say just, oh, that was a hallucination or or would refuse to look about it or to talk about it. And once in, once in a while there was this common, the same pattern where somebody would say that they tried would try to tell their doctor about it. Mm-hmm. And the doctor would say, oh, I, you better talk with your minister about that. Mm-hmm. So they would go to their minister, oh. and their minister would say, you better talk to your doctor about that. <laughs> so it was back and forth, right, Remy? They were passing yeah. the is what you said. Yeah, and, and another thing that is now in situation that we don't talk about is the last words of patients. And that is a very fascinating thing, too. I was fascinated by that in medical school because I had studied and written about philosophy of language before I went Mm -hmm. to medical school. Mm -hmm. So I was just really very intrigued about um, the very odd ways that patients talk. It doesn't make any sense. And yet the, the family members who are left behind are you know nonetheless feel like that that was very important and somehow in the depths of their mind they related to it well lisa has has done this really amazing study that you mentioned about um what people say as they are dying yes. and uh, i've just i've never had a partner before i could work with like this because um lisa and i have i think sort of complementing talents and mm-hmm. we've just had a really great time putting up this website or she put up the website and um so um i don't know this is uh i can honestly say i've never been so excited about a long-term project i mean this is uh to me, this is just something I've, I'm really focused on now is um, to getting this up because um, this is so important that people need a reflective source of knowledge and information. Mm. So that's well, what we do. want to yeah. yeah, you know, Raymond, yeah, and I think what I'm seeing, and I've, I um, really have only been doing this research for <clears throat> well, maybe a little over five years. And just in the short time that I've been involved in this work, I've seen this very exciting integration taking place, as I had mentioned earlier, between the medical community and the spiritual community, which many, you know, in the past was um, divided or more divided. And I think the University of Heaven, you know, Raymond feels really strongly about wanting to bring in if, uh, as much as possible people in the medical field to speak about their experiences. Eben Alexander, who wrote that really yes. beautiful book, Proof of Heaven, mm-hmm. he was a neuroscientist. It was a neuro... Right. Um, and he And he had a remarkable near-death experience that he writes about so beautifully, and he brings with him... Um, you know, a perspective that's really grounded and scientific. And 
And, you know, my work with the final words, I was trained as a linguist. And while I was always open to the idea that something beyond the literal world that we know, this um, five sense 3D world we know, um, I was open to that idea. But I certainly didn't have as strong a sense of it as I do now. And I was very much guided by a scientific approach to language. And when you start looking at the language of the threshold and, and look at the patterns, you do it in a systematic way and you write things down. And, and so you not only have impressions of what's going on, but you begin to collect data. You see very real patterns that demonstrate that people are having experiences before they die and speaking in ways that are very unusual, and yet there are patterns in those. And it was funny, Raymond said something that... Um, Evoked a, evoked a conversation I had with someone for the Final Words Project a couple months ago, and I, I don't think I don't know if I've mentioned it to Raymond even. There was this um, um, a woman was describing how she was watching her grandfather um, as in the dying process, and then her young toddler, and they were sitting on the bed. And the grandfather was at the point that often occurs where he was very close to passing and his language was almost like gibberish. You know, it was really hard to make out some of what he was saying. And the toddler was speaking the same way. Wow. <laughs> and Me. this woman described this very powerful exchange because they were there and people were watching mm-hmm. it and kind of in awe of it because here was the toddler and the grandfather and they seemed to have more understanding of what each other was saying <laughs> than anybody else in the room. And and that, that just goes to what Raymond was saying that there, um, uh, you know, while there's a lot of language that is very sensical that in the in people's flying final days, there's also some of this very nonsensical language. I was going to say nonsense, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to pure nonsensical syllables, to just funny constructions like the doll the doll needs a roofing. What? The doll, you know, or, you know, there's all kinds of nonsense that's spoken about. But sometimes it's just to the point of nonsense syllables, and yet something is being communicated and something is being understood. And I just had to uh, relay that story after Raymond had mentioned that because that was a, a recent account I heard, and I thought it was so, um, you know, illustrative of of how language is not always what we think of it to be. So yeah, communication, right. I should say. That's true. It, what was a common pattern, uh, Lisa, when you wrote the book of something that? was common, you know, of people, last words. Can you think of something off the top of your head that was uh, common? Well, well, I mean, one of the most common that other people have also written about, for example, Patricia mm-hmm. Kelly um, um, in, their, in their book, and Maggie Callanan in the book Final Gifts, is metaphor. Um, okay. So people begin to speak. First of all, there's what I call signature metaphors, so people will start talking about things that are really dear to them. For my father, um, as right. he uh, started going into the dying process, he started talking about the big art exhibition that was coming. Well, for him, he was using the metaphor of this big event of the art exhibition. And my mother's an artist, and his whole life he spent um, helping my mother with her art. So people start speaking, or for example, Jeffrey Holder, who uh, was a wonderful dancer, as he was dying, his very final words had to do with dance movement, one, two, three, mm. two, down, you know, down two, three. And yeah. he used the language related to his life. So people often start talking about the metaphor, using a metaphor for death. So maybe some big event, there's a big dance coming, or the big art show or the big golf game. And people start often announce some kind of big event that is coming. You know, oh, Dad, there's no big art exhibition, I remember, you know, we were saying, but that's not what he was talking about. It was a metaphor for some other event, but he was using something that was very central to his life. So mm-hmm. people speak in metaphors that are dear to their heart. I had one minister tell me this really remarkable story he had a congregant who was very close to dying, and she asked for a piece of paper, and uh, she couldn't write too well, you know, clearly, but um, she said she needed to write everybody's name down for the big dance, and she was really excited about the big dance that was coming. 
in the big party. And um, so she wasn't really writing. It was kind of like she was just kind of making <coughs> movements. And the minister said, so who are you inviting? And she started naming people who had already passed on to the other world. Hmm, and that's so in that and she herself loved parties. She was a very social person and a dancer. So for her she was getting ready for this big, you know, big event on the, on the other side. So metaphor is one of the most um prominent and metaphor of course is pretty sensible. You know, is is not mm-hmm. necessarily nonsense, but in the context of what's going on, people might say what are you talking about the big party? There's no big party coming up, Grandma, right? So if people take the language too literally, right. they'll miss the deeper metaphors. So that's, just that's often also thing. like yeah. talking about getting ready to go on a trip. Yeah, yeah I've heard it. that too. Like yes. Waiting for the train or whatever. Yeah. That's interesting. So how did you two meet? I was teaching a course uh, at Wisdom University at Mount Sheha, Alabama, and um, at, was talking a little about this and how you can use um, nonsense in, in the sense of Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll and so on, that that mm-hmm. kind of language is very often what people talk about when they're dying talk when they're dying and also that it's a very um important thing to understand um nonsensical language to be able to make sense of near death experiences and so on. And Lisa had been on the same track. So after class she came up and said <laughs> wanted to do a project on this. So uh it was started out as a sort of doctoral dissertation and I quickly evolved into, I think, a very brilliant book, uh, which is um, is obviously making a big splash, because this is something that uh, really needs to be investigated. Right now, listening to us, I can guarantee you that there are people out there who are saying, yes, now that's exactly what my grandmother said, or whatever. So mm-hmm. this is just a very, very common Phenomenon, and it's uh, something that really needs to be studied in a very deep way. Uh, I just One of the things is that this <clears throat> may indicate to us when when it is that somebody passes over to yes. the other side. Yes. I think you might be able to tell or identify that point by um, by listening to people's words and the dying process. Uh, I think there are ways to use that information to figure out when their mind went into a transcendent state of consciousness. And Raymond, you taught me that um, oftentimes when people are in transitional states, we'll see the emergence of nonsense. And it does seem that as people are dying... Oftentimes they'll move in and out of being relatively lucid to nonsensical states, and we've only begun to imagine this kind of research because most of linguistic research has been at the beginning of life with the acquisition of language. You know, how do people acquire language? But I think that as we track the language of end of life, we will be able to see, um, and I think nonsense is going to be a, a foreshadow or, or sort of an indication when there's shifting consciousness in, in many regards. And people yeah. are different. Now, you're just the way kids all acquire language differently, we let go of language and it transforms and transitions differently. But it's a very important study that's just just begun, and, and I hope that yeah. others will, will follow suit. Yeah, and linguists, too, have most, they have almost exclusively investigated literal language and yeah. figurative language that is meaningful. Nobody yeah. has really investigated language that doesn't make any sense, like nonsense. But contrasting to that fact is that Dr. Seuss's books <laughs> I read in the New York Times several years ago that at that time, Dr. Seuss' had s- books had sold 600 million copies mm. all over the world. 
And if that doesn't mean that understanding nonsense is <laughs> important, I, I don't know what would. I mean, that is a, that there's a whole unexplored domain of language out there that we hear every day. It's doo-wop music, sha-na-na-na-na-na, sha-na-na-na, get a job for uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis, Louis Armstrong with scat singing. Oh, or yeah. nursery rhymes, hickory dickory dock, or playground uh-huh. rhymes, and Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll and Edward Lear and Shel Silverstein. These are very. This is a very important domain of language, and like Lisa was saying, it's often in transitional states that you start nonsense comes up. For example, many people listening to us will understand that very often at night when they are drifting into sleep they hear nonsense in their head it's just a very common thing so there again we have the transition from one state to another of um when you go from one state to another nonsense seems to pop up so it's not too big a leap from that to understand why in the last few days of life when people are experiencing things that they can't put into ordinary words, that they would use language that is very, to the rest of us, very obscure or uh, un- unintelligible or meaningless. When, when mm-hmm. people have some unusual inner experience that doesn't, mm-hmm. that, that you can't put into words very easily, uh, what people do is they substitute nonsense for it. Mm-hmm. And and a good example is a, a fairly common experience called cinema, where people will tell you that their senses get mixed up. Mm-hmm. And the okay. most common form of it is people say that they, when they listen to music, they hear the music, but they also, it's also accompanied by colors. <laughs> and and oh, there's okay. a... Sh- Yeah, a chef who uh, was uh, described in the medical literature a few years ago who tasted shapes. And when he would describe his experience of shape, uh, of taste, he would have to say, this chicken tastes round today, or these grapes seem sort of triangular to me. (laughs) And those things made sense to him, but to the rest of us, it... It didn't make sense. And that makes us understand a lot better why people who have near-death experiences, that no matter how articulate they are, they say, I just can't describe it to you. I just, it's beyond words. And then they have to put it in words that, if you think about it for a minute, they say there's no time and there's no space in this experience, right? Mm-hmm. But they right. say the best way I can describe it is I got out of my body and I went through a tunnel into a light and I saw my dead relatives. I came back to my body and returned to life. Well, that's a travel narrative, isn't it? That's a travel yeah. story. But what does a travel narrative mean if there's no time or space? <laughs> See well, that's what I mean? So right. that people no who are trying their best to put this into words, the words sometimes aren't really adequate. No. It's it's sometimes hard to describe that. You're right. Yes. And when you and when and when you collect um the fi- you know, as we've collected the data of the final word and you hear some mm-hmm. of the People say, well, you know, my father said to me at one point, he said, there's, um, there's so much so in sorrow. And that's a technically a nonsensical statement, and yet there are all kinds of experiences from just mild, you know, like being in love, which some people might say is an altered state, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is hard to words, to, you know, deeply altered or, or different states that involve maybe, you know, crossing dimensions or being in other states of mind. But language really seems to track um, the, you know, those different conditions and different states of mind. And when Raymond you know, shared the accounts of near-death experience, we often hear people speak in very paradoxical ways about their experience. 
um, you know, I've never felt so alive as when I was dead is a very, you know, was a kind of one that, that really struck me. That's the contradiction. You know, how can you yes. feel alive when you're dead? Well, you can, that makes no sense within the context of what we know about the literal world. But when you begin to look at the kinds of contradictions and fascinating paradoxes in the language of those who are crossing over, you you have to bend disbelief and because if you only look at things through the lens and I think the narrow lens of what we know about this literal reality then of course what people are saying make no sense but if you imagine there are other states of being and other ways of perceiving and sensing and feeling the world since you know like the one that Raymond just mentioned of, of synesthesia you know where suddenly the senses are um are combined, you know, new ways of experiencing, uh, just new ways of experiencing, right? That's what begins to emerge as people are dying and when people have spiritual experiences throughout their lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So it, it's, it's very, language is, is the tip of the iceberg, but it's a fascinating tip for me, of course, because that's my passion is in language. But through studying the language at the threshold, I've learned so much about spirituality and consciousness, and I feel like we've only just begun in, in beginning to understand. And someone told me, Raymond, I'm curious if you know if this is true. You know, a lot of times people tell stories of final words, and with famous people, we don't know what is true or what is just sort of fictionalized. Mm-hmm. Yep. But one I heard from Daniel Webster is that he, um, someone told me who I feel is a very good source. She said he mm-hmm. said, um, I still live, were his last words. Wow. And I don't know that's if that's true, but that's powerful. And we know, of course, for sure, because it's, it's you know, been clearly documented um, and corroborated, was uh, Steve Jobs. Oh, wow. Right, oh, Steve wow. Jobs, yes. Yeah, oh, wow. Now that. Yeah, now that wasn't nonsense, of course, but um, well, and some people might say it's nonsense. What is he talking about? He's dying, but um, but you know, clearly that wasn't linguistic nonsense. The um, people do say all kinds of things. You know, that pattern of repetition is really common at end of life. Yeah, and that that is a figure of speech too. It's called yeah, epizuxis, right. where you repeat the same word or short phrase over and over. Um, um, and so that is the way that people have of uh, getting into altered states too. It's mm-hmm. a, a lot of kids will learn that by repeating the same word over and over and over and over and over, that they can eventually reach a point of almost like an ecstasy. That's true. And you you wonder because repetition is so common in the transcripts that we gathered. As a matter of fact, I was just looking over at one um, one transcript I received yesterday, where the person girl said to his wife that he thought the sun was attached to his bed and was pointing to the light near his wow. bed. Said I think that's the sun, and then he goes worlds and worlds and more worlds and more worlds and more worlds. Wow, wow. That is Very, something. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, and the language yes. often is just, it's almost, very often it's almost poetic or it's just be, it's rich and beautiful language. Yet if we just discount it as, as nonsense, we're missing so much. And we're also missing the possibility of better understanding how our minds work and how consciousness works. If we just disregard people's, you know, quote nonsense as being invalid, but as Raymond said, there's something about nonsense that we know inherently is as valid as sense in terms of language and maybe even in terms of experience, right? Yes, that's that's fascinating. I well, you know, at least I read your book. It was fascinating. It really was. Mm, thank um, you. Raymond, are you are you doing a book called God is Bigger Than the Bible? Are you doing something with that? <laughs> I am, and I've been writing that book about ten years, and it was the scale kind of stuck. And Lisa and I are sort of working on it now, and it's uh, it's a joint product very much now, and uh, we're going to be publishing it soon, I, I guess. Through the and yeah, we're going to yeah. Through the University yeah. of well, Heaven. Well, this is another project you have going on, right? 
Yeah, yeah, we're going to do a course apparently on that too. The God oh, is like it'll be like a course, and we're building up one to do on grief because mm-hmm. um, one of Good. the things that brings people to think about life after death is the loss of a loved one, and um, I've been. Actually, I've been de facto a grief counselor since about 1970 because as soon as I started talking about these near-death experiences, uh, people would come to me and they were obviously looking to these experiences to give them some sort of comfort um, in the wake of a loss of a loved one. And so I have my own sort of way of helping people with grief and uh, I mean, it's just something I've done for ages, and we're mm-hmm. we're working on that one, and um, have a we have a lot of wonderful programs coming up. So you I'm really just do. so pleased. This is to me like a real opportunity to do um, good for people. Yes, it really is. It it truly is. Now we have a caller. Do you, you want to pause for a minute and see? If what they want to ask you? How we'd love it. Hi, welcome. Hi, I'm just listening. Oh, you're just going to listen? Okay, keep listening. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So, um, Raymond, when you talk about all these projects, it's like you're a kid in a candy store. I mean, that's what I (laughs) think of. You know, I mean, you're so enthusiastic. It's wonderful. You too, Lisa. I am. Curiosity has pretty much excuse me excuse me has driven my life pretty much. I mean, I had my I got my PhD in philosophy. When I was, um, let's see, I guess, 24. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and then okay. I taught philosophy for three years, and then I went to medical school, and I had my MD by the time I was, I guess, 30. And mm-hmm. so I'm 74 now, and I can well appreciate from my life experience looking back at that that there was something very wrong with somebody who would have two <laughs> doctoral degrees before they were 31. And, um, and you know, so it's helps. true. If you look at it from our perspective at our age, it's true, right? I mean, you would hate to see somebody do that, but their nose buried in the book all their life. But but it, to me, it was just wonderful. I, now at the age of 74... I have all of this inner museum of knowledge, and it's yeah. it's like it's so it interesting is. because mm. new things now add onto it in a in a logical place. It's like mm. I I mean I try to read books on all kinds of interesting subjects, but it's gotten to the point almost where everything I read fits in pretty well with the oh. rest of it. So. That's just a really interesting experience, and I, um, you know, at seventy-four, people really live in their memories a lot, and it's so interesting. It's like you have a inner museum, and um, I have these two wonderful adopted kids, both adopted at birth. Carter's twenty now, and Caroline is twenty is seventeen, mm-hmm. and. Um, I can just look in my mind and I can see them grow up from little tiny babies to full-grown people. And I can see every little bit in between. So (laughs) I heartily recommend old age, by the way. (laughs) This, This is something that really gets a bad rap in our society. But I'll tell you, I'm 74 and I've never been so... I mean, it's it's like it's gotten to where my mind can just absorb a book like a sponge. Mm-hmm. And bragging here, I mean, this is something that I hear from a lot of people my age, that paradoxically your mind gets even sharper. Yes. And at the same time, having been a 
geriatric psychiatrists before I went into forensics, I um, I also see you see that it's the the transition from old age to a passing away to another realm is is a is a positive development rather than a negative one. Mm-hmm. And this is what I've been saying since about 1970. But now that I am 74 years old saying it, people get panicked. Oh, no, you've got a long time to live. You know, but no, no, no. I just, my whole life's work reveals to me that it's not a bad deal. <laughs> and um, I just don't want to get trapped in the medical system, you know, with tubes and wires. That's my main thing. But the nice thing about this phase of life is you really do this, reach this kind of satisfaction. And you're, you, at this phase in life, your whole focus is on helping other people. That's all it is. And, it's, and that is so liberating. It is yes. so neat to be mm. no longer burdened by a uh, Self-identity, it really is. It is. Wow. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's wonderful. Go ahead, Angel. And it's, well, I've, I've seen, just in the time I've known Raymond, it's been really an honor to watch him get older and teach me, because I'm, I'm, I'm 59, and inspire me about what's possible. But also if you do, um, if you're unafraid about what happens after death and dying, um it really does change how you think about everything, or it has changed it for me. And what Raymond's also taught me is that we keep we keep growing, of course. And I remember when my father was dying, uh, we would come into the room. He was a psychologist and very self-reflective and always trying to improve himself in whatever way that was possible. And I remember even when he was dying, we would walk in the room and I would say, how are you doing, Papa? And he would say, I'm working on myself. I'm working on myself. And uh-huh. I could see he was deeply working with, it was almost as if there was something very internal, you know, going on as he was making peace with what was going, what was uh-huh. happening. But this whole idea that, you know, we are never, um, we're never finished. <laughs> and if we go on to another dimension, my goodness, we may have so much more ahead of us. You yes. know, but, but um, you know, it's very exciting to have um a friend and colleague who who is excited about you know the work and also has a sense of calm and peace that I think comes potentially with getting older and as I said it helps to have this view that there's something beyond this world I think it it helps you know and as we get older well, and you two oh, are very is, excited yeah. go ahead go ahead yeah um, one thing I want to make sure I mention because I'm because because I might forget it, um, no, I don't is that we, <laughs> we have mm-hmm. a, a blog from the University of Heaven called Illuminating, and we have all we have guest columnists like Dr. Kenneth Ring and Paul Perry, who is one of Raymond's co-authors. Right. Um, and we have just and we have people sharing personal accounts in their blog. But one of the features we have, um, the middle of every month, is called Ask Raymond. And so if there's anyone in your audience right now who's too shy to call in, because I know that, you know, I understand, I used to be a lot shyer, and I know how hard that can be sometimes, mm-hmm. but someone might be sitting on a burning question right now, I want to invite anybody to um, email me at theuniversityofheaven at com, and if they have a question, we'll answer it um, for them, and, you know, we, we'll just you know, send them a link to the blog. So anyway, I just want to let folks know that. If no, that's good. With the question. Yeah. And, and just so give me... maybe somebody just tuned in, and I'd like you to go over again about the University of Heaven and what inspired both of you to start this oh. and talk a little bit about it a little bit more because this is a yeah. big project. Do you want to say, go ahead, Raymond. Yeah, well, what inspired me is that it's we all know that in the seal, which is so important and so real, there is a lot of misrepresentation and sensationalism and people who are just spinning out their egos. So what Lisa and I wanted to do is to create a I could say a learning portal, but a portal 
and it will be about near-death experiences and shared death experiences, and we will be doing the really terrific, reliable, brilliant investigators. And so we're doing it at www.theuniversityofheaven.com, and and this is our forum to bring really interesting and reliable and uh, real information about near-death experiences and what I think is the most important question of existence, which is whether there is an afterlife. And, you know, uh, some, what's important to me also with the website is um, – Raymond has blazed the trail for so many of us to do this research. Um, And he is such a great mentor, and he's very supportive. He has mentored Mm -hmm. so many people's work. It's just remarkable when I look at all the authors he has supported, including including me. Um, So part of, for me, what the website is about is really a tribute to you know Raymond's work and 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 those who have followed after him. So um, many of his proteges, you know, Eben Alexander, Melvin Moore, right. Jeff Olson, all these folks um, are going to be William Peters, who's doing beautiful research on shared death experiences and writing a really wonderful book about it now. Um, you know, all these people are going to be coming once a month. We'll be doing. Webinars where Raymond, for a change, will be interviewed. You know, he's used to being interviewed, and now he's going to have the opportunity to interview many of his uh, proteges, associates, and colleagues. And so I'm just delighted and so excited that we can pay a tribute to Raymond's work and all the people who have followed in his footsteps um, since, because it's been not quite 50 years since Life After Life, but um, you know, it's been many decades. But when I think of Raymond, I think of such an um, unselfish man. I know. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I agree. No, really. I really look at that. I mean, you've helped so many people, Raymond. And mm. You're so unselfish, and, you know, you give out your knowledge willingly to people. Well, because it's fun, and, and it <laughs> is. So I just enjoy doing what I do, and... Uh, it's really fascinating. And personally, see, my focus now is on my two adopted kids. I've got two grown sons. They're on their own. i got a wonderful grandson, and he's got his parents. But the, these two have me in there. Um, so it's very interesting thing, again, at this age where you develop that focus. And uh, mm-hmm. you're just so clear while you're here. I, I saw that in a lot of elderly people that I interviewed over the years and uh, now here I am and I'm just astonished that <laughs> I now understand this from within and that's a, a great way of looking at from within so I, I want to ask you Raymond and I'm going to ask you Lisa when you think about your career and everything that's happened to you who would you say inspired you Raymond Well, I would say Plato. Um, When I was 18 years old, I read Plato's Republic, and that same semester I read Plato's Phaedo, P-H-A-E-D-O, which is still the best book ever written on life after life, on life after death from the the rational perspective. And uh, so I would think that the person who really inspired me most in my life is Plato. And then, in connection with that, George Ritchie, afterward, Mm -hmm. who was the first living person I heard the near-death experience from, and was also, quite simply, the the best all-around human being I ever met in my life. He was just an amazing, amazing guy, who wasn't quite here. I mean, he was... It was like he had one foot in another world. Well, that makes sense, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And Lisa, how about you? Wow. You know, it's so funny. I have never answered that question. You think I would have. 
And it's so hard for me not to think about my father. You know, that I've had true, yeah. so many authors, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Maya Angelou, who I just, uh, who really made, impacted me. Her, You know, I'm thinking of the authors I read when I was younger, and I always loved literature and language. But really, I just, my father, um, in so many ways, inspired for me a love and language. And, of course, because of what I witnessed in his dying days, brought me to this work. And um, and then that also led me to Raymond, who has been a, just a profound inspiration. So that's, thank you for that question. I'll have to think more on it. <laughs> There's been so many beautiful influences, but my father was such a profound one. I'm sure. Well, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you might want to tell our audience before we close the show? Well, I would say to everybody listening in, thank you so much for mm-hmm. listening to us tonight. And I really hope you will check us out at www.theuniversityofheaven.com <laughs> because we've got a lot of really interesting programs coming up. And we would appreciate we appreciate you listening to us tonight, and we hope that you will check our place out and see whether some of the programs are interesting to you. you uh, there's somebody else that just popped up. Let's see what they... Oh, great. Say. Hold on a minute. Hi, can we help you? I just tuned in. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Oh, uh, we're talking about near-death experience and a bunch of things, if, and we're just starting to close right. the show. Oh, good. Okay. I'll keep listening if, you, if that's okay. No, that's <laughs> fine. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. Okay. So I think we're going to um, close, and we. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I mean, you're still my hero. You changed my life. Thank you so much. Aww. Thank you so much. And this has you just really been did. so delightful tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, Lisa. And, oh, and you are a special person and a special soul as well, Lisa. That book that, mm, uh, that you. you did with Raymond is phenomenal. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay. So thank you and take care. Good night, everyone. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And also, I would like to thank all the truth seekers around the world for listening. And until we meet again, may you be the light that helps others see.